0: Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast, and here is your host, Ryan Mack. Welcome to the Payment Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mack. Now, the web is certainly meant for everyone, but why do some organizations build a UX with a good enough for them mindset? With this mindset, they really could be losing about 15% of their consumers by not thinking about how disabled people use their UX or how their UX creates more complications. But for those who recognize the need to be more inclusive when they build out a UX, what are the steps that they need to take? What are the things that they need to consider? So, on this episode, I'm going to be joined by Justin Fox, who is the Director of Software Engineering at New Data, a MasterCard company, Dave Cincy, who is the VP of Product Development at MasterCard, and Tim Sloan, the VP of Payments Innovation at Mercator Advisor Group, to discuss these issues and more. So there's certainly a lot of data and insight to unpack on today's episode. So without any further delays, let's start the show. So Justin, Dave, and Tim, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode, where we're going to be taking a look at user experience and kind of like a graphical design here and particularly for those individuals um, that it it, it, it can kind of affect, Um, because I mean, there's this really interesting stat that's out there that says, you know, at least 1 billion people or 15% of the world population have a recognized disability, um, uh, according to the, the World Bank in 2018 which I certainly find that number to be very fascinating because when we take a look at user design and implementation, especially through the payments ecosystem itself and the payment experience, I I think that some organizations kind of trap themselves in the, hey, this works well for me, therefore, this experience is perfect. When the reality is, looking at that stat, no, it's not for 15% of the world. Um, And I mean, 15%, that's a huge number when you're taking a look at the total population um, of the world. So perhaps kind of based upon that stat, maybe, uh, Dave, I want to start with you, and maybe you could kind of unpack from your organization at New Data's perspective, what it is that they're doing and taking a look at when they hear a stat like that.
1: Yeah, sounds good, Ryan. I appreciate that. Um, so today, really what we're going to focus on is about ableism and ageism. And when I talk about ableism, what I'm actually referring to is when someone's discriminated against in a technology because of their ability to use a physical device. So what does that mean? An example would be someone missing a hand or not having a mobile device with a fingerprint scan or not having reception because they're traveling through, traveling through a rural area. Something to keep in mind with these types of exclusions is they can also be temporary or situational, not necessarily always permanent. So a situational example would be like Dave's traveling through an area with poor reception or a parent carrying a child and only having one, one hand free to complete a task. A temporary example of an exclusion would be something like, hey, I broke my arm and I have to wear a cast or even wearing a face mask when you're going out into a public or running into a store. This is a challenge in society that increasingly relies on the internet to have access to service and goods because many people are left behind not able to verify themselves online in order to get goods or services that they may need. To highlight the scale of what we're talking about today, we also know that roughly two thirds of Americans shop online and one in four adults live with a disability in the United States. On top of that, we know that roughly 26,000 people a year suffer from a permanent loss of upper extremities And if you stretch that to include some of the temporary and situational examples I I was talking about, this quickly becomes an issue that affects more than 20 million people. To kind of go a little bit more global, when you look at the United Kingdom, we know that nine out of 10 people don't bother to complain when they run across a website that they're not able to easily verify themselves or they have some type of accessibility problem. And when looking specifically at that study, we also found out that 71% of individuals with disabilities actually abandon the website when it's difficult to use. And if you try to put a number or value behind that, uh, the estimated loss is over 11 billion pounds a year in the United Kingdom alone.
0: I mean, I'm really glad that we're, we're we're talking about this here today because on on a very high level, I mean, the web is built for everybody. It's meant for everybody um, in it. So, I mean, I'm really I'm really glad that we're having this conversation about it. And I think that those from just a a, a business aspect, I mean, there there's certainly the the moral aspect of it. Of yes, you you want to make sure that your your platform, your site, your program, whatever it is that you're putting on the web, is accessible to everybody. Um, but I mean, also the the business implications of that, the kind of the loss of revenue in terms of just, I mean, we know just even as uh, kind of everyday consumers, like you get frustrated with a site, you leave. So, I mean, you kind of put yourself in a position that of an individual who is disabled and kind of go, well, there's those additional kind of hurdles that might have to be overcome um, there. But Justin, I'm curious to get kind of what what, what your thoughts are on this.
2: So I'm going to pivot from disabilities and the inclusion aspect over there into ableism and, or sorry, into ageism so similar to how ableism focuses on exclusion due to your physical capabilities or where you're located etc ageism tends to focus on exclusion around that constantly changing level of technology literacy present in the in the global population divided by age group Uh, this can be observed by monitoring the differences in how somebody approaches the use of a device uh, which will vary due to a range of environmental factors and that individual's experience Younger users, don't ever give a toddler a tablet, but younger users tend to be bolder and more likely to be using a newer device. As folks move into retirement and have less active income sources, a noticeable change occurs where their devices last a lot longer and their interactions are a little bit more wary, uh, distrustful. Basically, if you've been burned over time from your youthful existence, you you, you tend to be a little bit more sensitive to the dangers of being online. If we look at news headlines that are constantly featuring data breaches and those super very real consequences to people's lives, I can definitely appreciate that wariness that comes with age of interacting online. Attackers can cause very real and very lasting damage to your life with that data that came from a data breach. They can create new accounts or they can take over existing ones. And recovery from fraudulent, fraudulent use of your identity can take a lifetime. Let's just step through a very quick example. If I create an account with an online service, giving them my name, date of birth, address, sex, nickname, and secret question answers, and that data gets exposed or becomes available to an attacker, what services do they not have access to? They, they literally have the keys to your online identity. And once they have that, there's not really much going back. And as you go through life and you sign up for more and more online services, the likelihood of being affected by this increases steadily. Once you've been burned once or twice, your, your interactions with technology have such a negative connotation now of course on the positive front i would like to you know give a little bit of an uplifting little piece here and say there's a nice financial benefit and an environmental impact that comes from holding on to that same device for years uh, it can improve your quality of life by letting you spend money where you need it more and it also impacts climate change by reducing our waste with that nice little fun tidbit let's jump into the younger folks those who haven't experienced your identity getting stolen yet uh, but they're a lot more likely and a lot more willing to just enter their data into random online services in pursuit of whatever the latest hottest trend is. Uh, That's also despite a huge rise in technology literacy starting at a very young age. That's despite folks explaining that password 123 is a bad password. Why would you still use that in 2020, 2021 and beyond? Password reuse between online services is still high as well, meaning attackers can jump from one of your online services to another with relative ease. This is where a lot of creativity is needed to resolve these behaviors while ensuring that you're not leaving any age group behind. As Dave mentioned, this is increasingly important in our online society that has been growing and growing, especially with the effects of the pandemic. The, The bottom line here is that The way somebody is treated online and how we verify them and how we interact with them shouldn't discriminate with the shouldn't discriminate them by their abilities or their age group.
3: You know, I think it's great new data is bringing this awareness to us all. I I have to admit, I look at the pretty blunt tools that are used in e-commerce and business in general or how they determine whether they're taking care of their prospects and customers, which is basically abandonment. You know, how many people just left the facility because they couldn't use it? You know, that's a pretty blunt instrument for figuring out, well, why did they abandon what was specifically wrong with the uh, application? Um, I, I think we have a ways to go, but I think it's great to start thinking about it now.
0: Yeah, and and I certainly think I mean there's certainly a lot of lot of fantastic points that that were made there, um, but I I want to dive a little bit further into uh, the points Justin that you were making just kind of really around ageism, really kind of discrimination here, because I think that it's a lot of the things that you brought up are really kind of interesting, especially from a development standpoint, because as you brought up, you've kind of got a younger generation that will quickly kind of cycle through into new products that might have new security features or new uh, untested features that are in there that you say hey yeah we're launching this and we'll let other people figure out what the bugs are and maybe there's security issues to it versus you know some older individuals that might have a device that's been in the marketplace you know for 10 15 years that are still holding on to it kind of if it's not broke don't fix it type of mentality but when you look at it from a developer standpoint you kind of start to sit there and think well are developers developing just for the new but not thinking about what's still being used in the old and saying, well, that older device might create this security breach in this fashion just because they didn't have the technology implemented into that device at the time, and therefore these new technologies are taking advantage of that, but there's still a loophole that you need to be aware of as a developer. Uh, But perhaps maybe you could kind of walk us through a little bit more about the points that you were were making there.
2: Sure. Thank you. Uh, I would just like folks to take a moment to think about the following scenario. You have a flip phone. And yes, they still make these, and I actually have uh, folks in the family that have these flip phones. And you pay for SMS messages, you have limited funds. You shop online and you're interested in buying from a new retailer that you found online, maybe somebody recommended them to you. During the signup process, they ask for your phone number, they send you a text message, you type a code in, then you gotta click in the link in your email, you do so, and then bam, your account's activated. Next you log in and you get another text message for the auth. and now all of a sudden because you're paying for each of those SMS messages, uh, you start to wonder, Hey, is it worth purchasing from this retailer because I'm getting a one time authentication code each time for every step of the process. As you start to go through it, maybe you add items in there and try to check out and get another code is sent to you. Not every demographic and not every cell phone plan is created equally. And so you can actually rack up a lot of charges with this very simple authentication mechanism. If it's a flip phone, depending on how old it is, it might not have the ability to install an authenticator app. This is something that can be really challenging on older devices. But if you had a newer phone that had physical biometrics or uh, the ability to install apps, you'd be able to transact easily online and interact. But if you don't have the finances for that or you don't want a new device, that's where the challenge comes into play. 23% of Americans who make less than 30,000 per year don't own a smartphone according to research from Pew Research aged in 2019. If you look at the roughly three in 10 adults with that that level of income, the 30000 a year, uh, 29%, they just don't own a smartphone. I can't imagine going through life without a smartphone nowadays. More than 4 in 10 adults don't have home broadband services or a traditional computer. The majority of lower-income Americans don't own a tablet, but if you look at... By comparison, uh, what other income brackets and adults that are earning, say, a hundred thousand or more per year? Uh, pretty much everyone in a household making over a hundred thousand will have a tablet, a computer, uh, the latest trend and trending smartphone, and that's a, that's a huge challenge when if you've gone into senior life and your finances are a lot more constricted or if you're super young and your parents don't have that income to leverage. If we shift gears a bit and tackle one of my earlier points, uh, most online services don't need the majority of information they ask for and collect. This actually enables younger users to get really used to handing over vast quantities of information about themselves uh, to just random service providers, when that service provider did not need to know that information to complete the interaction the user was looking for. As they age, they then become um, less and less comfortable because they start to accumulate large amounts of spam, abuse, and toil, such as just even just deleting emails uh, from a company. And this can actually result in brand damage to online services as a whole or translating into increased customer services calls to check if the email was a phishing email or a legitimate offer among other use cases cyber crimes against older adults have increased five times since 2014 costing us more than 650 million dollars in losses per year according to the ftc uh, in 2019 on a personal level i find nothing more frustrating than service providers with a gender form that only support a binary options. So Mr. Miss, Mrs. or doctor, and I'm not a doctor, but that's the most gender neutral form option I have uh, because they don't include the MX option. On the other end, Drifting away from my own story there, uh, on the other end, if you look at online services that allow kids to spend money unsupervised on a card, that's also a huge issue. I would hate to be a parent nowadays where I maybe bought a budget tablet and handed it off to a toddler uh, and I had set it up, it was connected to my account, and bam, I have a 10K bill <laughs> for my mobile app usage, that's, that's a challenge for a caretaker. Uh, especially if they're not technologically savvy or super literate on the latest technology capabilities.
1: Justin, I think that's a good example and segue back into a couple of things that I'd like to talk about uh, related to ableism that we can all envision. So let's assume that you are one of those people that do have a smartphone, and after working hard all day, you decide you wanna come home, relax, take a bath, turn on your favorite podcast. After a fair bit of time relaxing, enjoying yourself, you decide to get out and dry yourself off. You remember the fact that you got some bills in the mail that day and you're like, hey, I wanna go pay my bills online. So you grab your smartphone, you go to login, and it says, unable to authenticate. And you're like, what's going on? You look down at your thumbprint and you realize your entire hands are wrinkly because you just got out of the bath. Now, this is an example I think we can all envision. It's just a temporary exclusion because your finger won't always be wrinkly, but these are the kind of examples that we're talking about. Let's go over another example in a similar situation, although this time you need to run to the local pharmacy store to pick up some medicine for your kid. So you go go to the local pharmacy, you got your face mask on and your baby in one arm because you wanna go in and get what you need. When you're ready to leave, you're like, hey, I'm gonna head over to checkout. I'm gonna pay but I don't wanna dig through all my belongings to find my credit card to pay but luckily I have a smartphone that does tap and pay. But then you realize you have to unlock your phone using facial recognition but your mask is on and you're holding your baby and you need to keep your mask on. This is another example um, of a temporary and situational exclusion because you're holding your child in one hand as well as you have a face mask on um, in order to protect yourself. Now, these are examples of situations that I can see happening to myself. But what about the 25% of Americans that have a disability or the 26,000 people that suffer from a permanent loss of an upper extremity, or as Justin stated earlier, the portion of people that don't have smartphones? What do we do in situations where we require them to validate and authenticate themselves in environments that it's not as easy as waiting for your finger to be less wrinkly or just pulling down your face mask and putting down your kit? because I can tell you what's happening in some of these scenarios, these individuals aren't able to validate their identity online, causing them not to get the goods and services they need. I think we can all recognize that security is important, but there's a balance and a multi-layered approach that we need to consider further.
3: You know, you've both pointed out the, the problems very effectively. And I sit here as a technologist, and you know, I'm somebody who always wants to fix a problem, not just listen to the problem. and the challenges associated with uh addressing this broad use case challenges strikes me as requiring more technology, probably to solve it you know as as you were talking about the child and the face mask, I'm thinking, well, gee, if they had uh, cameras with AI they'd be able to detect these problems in store and be able to start recognizing those use cases there 20 percent, 10 percent of the primary problem. But each problem that you describe is so different and so unique. I I don't even know how you would start. Yeah, so let's
0: let's I mean let's let's kind of open that that Pandora box a little bit here, and maybe maybe you know uh, Justin, we could start with you, um, and kind of break down like from, from your perspective, like what what are you seeing in the industry of ways that Companies can, you know, I don't, I don't want to say avoid this issue that's here, but being able to recognize that, hey, this is something that's going on in the industry. This is a real problem. So how is it that they're actually going about and
2: improving it? So, Ryan, everything starts by recognizing exclusion. And once you've recognized it, you just continuously work at it and make it a priority to address. Then by being mindful of what solutions we're building and the wider social impact that they can have, we slowly gain ground, uh, making it so that way that 15% of the world's population has a recognized disability, has a little less friction in their lives bit by bit. As a director of software engineering and as an educator, I can say without reservation that every bit of tackling this problem starts with how you approach designing your solution in the first place, and the composition of your engineering teams. When we solve problems with our own bias, that's when the exclusion starts. The more diverse your engineering team, the more likely it is that the team will catch on and correct design issues earlier on, especially if they're comfortable collaborating with each other. By recognizing how we're solving those issues with our own biases earlier in the development process, that means the sooner we can adjust the approach that we're going and ensure that the diverse human experience is accounted for. Our interactions are so heavily dependent on what we can see, hear, touch and say uh, that it's impossible to fully understand somebody else's lived experience unless it is your experience. As technology is increasingly prevalent in our lives, whether that's a mobile device, uh, something just a connected device like an IoT uh, sensor or a smart assistant, Uh, it's important that we take measures to leverage inclusion as a design principle early on i'm a huge fan of building a low fidelity prototype and iterating on it something that's often called evolutionary prototyping because it lets you solve for your one and extend it to include the wider population where teams are less diverse which is common in the tech field especially in north america uh, an alternative approach can be leveraged This one's always popular games. Everybody likes a good game, right? Uh, The way that this game would work in your design process as you're building things out is you have a group of individuals write down examples of physical, social and time of day constraints. The more variety, the better. You're going to categorize it into either physical, social or time of day. Then you're going to draw one example for each category and then you're going to try whatever you're building under that circumstance. Maybe you have uh, one arm tied behind your back. Maybe you have to do it while eating lunch. Maybe you have to do it with some other type of constraint. If you feel any challenge or frustration or friction, maybe a button on your phone was too far away to click one handed, then imagine how much worse it is when that's your lived in experience. When you have no personal stake in using that particular retailer or that particular bank. And so like if the product isn't going to work for you, you're going to want to go elsewhere. Uh, gaming it can make it a little bit easier to account for uh, that di- type of diversity. And generally g- generally speaking, the more diverse the individuals consulted for your examples in the game, the better.
3: Justin, I love that. And I think you should start boxing the game up and selling it on the internet. So that- people can get a good, easy start. That's awesome, I love it.
2: It's definitely been a lot of fun as I work through it with my teams. Uh, We have an amazingly diverse group at MasterCard uh, and within our new data group here in Vancouver, uh, the team that reports up to me is 45% female, 45% male, a couple non-binary folks thrown in the mix. Uh, We have parents, we have folks that are looking at retirement and we have folks that are fresh out of university having that level of diverse team and combining it with a gaming approach uh, means that you're able to tackle the unique challenges across a wide range of cultures, uh, ages, and different types of user experience relatively easily.
3: The other thing that I find fascinating is the relationship to the problems we have with AI, where the sample base is too small or, or not broad enough to take into account the population. HP's laptop First laptop that did facial recognition couldn't recognize black people. Uh, That's a huge mistake, but there's a Canon that had uh, autofocus that couldn't detect Asians of all things. So, you know, this maintaining an open lens and being able to understand all the different people and aspects that are gonna be impacted is incredibly important. And uh, I thank New Data for bringing it to our attention.
1: So building off of what Justin just talked about, it starts with realizing security and ease-of-use isn't a one-size-fits-all solution. It's about moving away from lumping everyone into one massive group and knowing we each have our own uniqueness. It's about moving towards a multi-layered solution while also giving users options. So don't focus on creating a single solution that uses thumbprint scans or one-time passcodes or a device ID to validate people. You can look at leveraging things like passive biometrics to validate a person based on their historical behaviors and uniquenesses. The need to validate our identity in a growing digital world is gonna to continue to rise. And with each of us having our own human uniqueness, why not exploring leveraging that uniqueness as a way to validate our identity? With a multi-layered approach, we can leverage physical biometrics in scenarios where it's applicable. But when it's not, don't let the whole process fail. Look for another uniqueness whether that's you buying a new TV online and deciding to validate yourself by using a familiar device, a familiar location, and logging in a familiar time of day, or me deciding to validate my identity by getting a unique code sent to my email address because I'm in a location that only has internet and doesn't have cell service. MasterCard actually released an article called Restoring Trust in a Digital World, and what really stood out to me was two things. It was about how a digital identity service needs to be simple, smart, and secure, and more importantly, developed and implemented with a user-centric design. So what does that mean to me? It means that each step along the way of rolling it out and creating it, and using this as a way to validate yourself, you put the user at the center, which includes our own human uniqueness.
3: Actually, I like that because obviously, one of the things is to not be necessarily having to drive the user to a high-friction validation point for a low dollar transaction where it makes no sense, right? Yet still today, many places, no matter, you know, a $2 transaction, they're going to ask for you to validate yourself.
0: All right. So before we before we wrap things up here, I, I'm kind of curious because we're we're talking about kind of from a user experience. And when we think about from a development standpoint, I think we've kind of recognized that Look, you're, yes, there there is the user in kind of that, that broad sense of, of things here, but you can't think of the user from a user experience in that broad sense that we're talking about here. And as Dave, I think that you pointed out kind of using an individual's uniqueness from a security aspect of kind of almost leaning into that unique aspect of it um, to kind of help with security things of it. But I'm curious then from new data's aspect, all the things that we've really talked about, maybe there's kind of a use case or some example that we can directly point people to that they can go, oh, okay, this is exactly what it is that when new data is talking about this, this is what they mean and here's a process that they've implemented um, on that side to kind of really maybe put some kind of technical aspect around this entire conversation here today.
1: Yeah, I think I can give a couple of quick, perfect examples. Um, Let's say that you're signing up for a credit card application. Um, a new credit card application that you don't have already, you're not very familiar with that form. So when I look at the way that you are filling out that credit card application, um, the the, uh, the speed that you spend on that, the time of which you spend on that page is gonna be fairly so similar to anyone else that uh, is filling out that credit card application for the first time. But if I find a consistent behavior of someone filling out the form let's say three times faster than the average person, that's highly indicative of fraud because they're familiar with the form. Or are they copying and pasting their name? Or are they alt-tabbing to go to a different spreadsheet? That's just not common behavior. Taking it one step further to let's say a login page to a merchant website or a banking application, there's certain uniquenesses about the way that you log in versus how other people log in. So if I were to give you my username and password, the way that you fill it in versus how I fill it in is gonna be completely different whether that's typing cadence, whether that's clicking or tabbing to go to the next tab, whether it's using a mobile phone or using a desktop, or whether that's you use autofill and I never do. So there's a bunch of uniquenesses that we can use to validate, is this a genuine or a non-genuine user?
2: One of the best parts of working with new data and working with the products that we have is that layered approach. Our ability to combine device intelligence with behavioral analytics, with passive biometrics, and a consortium of data across a global network really brings a lot of power to the forefront of how we tackle all of these challenges in a way that doesn't promote exclusion as much as possible. And where we are able to double down on that and really push the boundary of what's possible on a 10-year-old cell phone. Uh, that's just a flip phone versus the latest and greatest smartphone. Uh, and that's really what's been enjoyable about my experience working with New Data and MasterCard on the technology front. One of the really powerful parts of the multi layered approach that we take here at New Data means that we're able to collect anonymized data that has been sanitized of most of the end user details. Uh, So, for example, Ryan, Tim, and Dave, we don't collect your name. We don't collect any of that. We really make sure that when we're treating with consumer data, uh, we can't trace it back to somebody's human identity. We want to make sure that it's used for fraud purposes only, and that's it. It's useless in any other context.
3: I've certainly been looking at behavioral biometrics. I think my first report on it was three years ago, and it's come a long way. And I keep expecting it to get to the point of persistent identity where my phone within my secure element is able to identify my behavioral traits, the way I hold it, the way I walk, and be able to track me. But of course, all of the issues you brought up, if if I hurt myself, if I'm suddenly walking with a limp, those are all going to change those behavioral characteristics and need to be taken into account. But I think we're gonna eventually see that this ability to recognize an individual uh, gets better and better and broader and broader and capable of taking into account all of these types of uh, problems.
0: Excellent, well, uh, Dave, Tim, uh... Justin, thank you so much for taking the time today for speaking to me about this very interesting topic um, in terms of user experience and, and customer experience, um, and really kind of diving deep into uh, kind of really the inclusion um, that the industry should really be thinking about from kind of this multi-lever layered approach here. Uh, and I hope to have all of you back on the podcast real soon.
3: Thanks, Ryan.
0: Thanks, Ryan.
2: Thank you, Ryan.